I just, I can't not think of Walter Sobchak. Right, because you get the reference. Yeah, like you yeah. get exactly what I'm going for. Uh, all right, everybody. Did they I, hear? Did they hear that about Walter Sobchak? I like a little bit of a teaser yeah. off the top. Well, just ease people into the next forty, roughly forty five minutes of whatever we got coming. Well, congrats because we got John Goodman on the podcast. We got today. John Goodman, everybody. Hey. Talking. Um, Pleasure but, to be here. Pleasure. Yeah, we'll, we'll introduce you. Don't worry. We will you don't have to you. talk until you uh, introduce you. But where we actually are is uh, the internet's most uh, contained media podcast. <laughs> Not wild at all. No one no one knows how wild we can be. Uh, it's on the list. It's on the list. That's the name of the pod, and it's the facts. It's the facts. Uh, it's hosted by me, Mason. And me, Noah Marger. We, uh, we got a guest today. We got a guest today. Very exciting guest today. Why don't you introduce yourself, guest? Hello, hello. My name is Dustin. Uh, I'm a good friend of Noah's. We met back in uh, film school, and uh, ever since then, we've been watching movies together and, and talking about movies, so it's kind of natural that uh, he has invited me here today. Yeah, we, uh, yeah. Dust, Dustin graduated two years before me and uh, moved up to L.A., and really the only, like, I guess, like, because, you know, I still lived in Orange County and he lived in L.A., so it's not the closest commute, and so we would basically be like, hey, do you want to go see Blank at the Egyptian, or hey, do you want to go see Blank at the New Bev, and we'd be mm. like, yeah, sure. So I'd always make the trip up, then Dustin would hop in Dustin's car, and we'd take the trip down to wherever it is, and that would be it, and that would happen, what would you say, like once every two or three months? Pretty much, probably. Yeah. yeah. And so, now he's here, he's doing the pod, he's and in the, uh, he's in the house. He's in the driver's seat today. In the driver's seat today. This is, this is a uh, guest choice episode. Uh, first guest. First guest, first guest choice. I'm really pleased with uh, the guest choice. Which we will get into in a little bit, but before we do, we teased on the last we episode. We teased on the last episode that we uh, we're gonna talk about an album that uh, I didn't listen to because I'm a bad person. <laughs> well, one of those things is true. One I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know which one it is, but uh, we're uh, this was this was a my pick. This was uh, uh, this was the Noah's pick for last week. Mason, you had not heard this album previously. I had not heard this album previously. Uh, Dustin, you had though, right? Uh, not in entirety, definitely. Oh, not in its entirety. Okay, so this so was you, your first full listen. Yes. Okay. So the album this week is uh good old boys by randy newman yep from uh, 1974 uh i so tell me a little bit about your history about with this album like what how, when did it come into your life like yeah that, like that kind of stuff so i i can't really say like it had a definite moment where it came into my life but it was interesting to me because when you're when i was a kid all i really knew randy newman as was the toy story guy. exactly yeah like he's the you got a friend in me mm-hmm. kind of guy and that's really all i knew and that's really all i cared to know about him and so it wasn't until maybe my junior or senior year of high school where i heard the song sail away oh for that's the first such a great time. song it's yeah. beautiful and what i and i just like i was like holy crap this is not pixar yeah this is not really anything that I had recognized him from yet. And so when I was listening to it, I was literally like so amazed that this was the same guy that I started kind of digging in to what else he had. And I, then I realized that I Love LA was a song. Yeah. And then I kind of just realized that, oh, he actually kind of had a pop career a little bit before Pixar. But like right, my, yeah. my generation, our generation, I only knew him as the Toy Story guy. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, yeah. and I and it was one of those things where I loved the song Sail Away, but then someone told me the, that the that meaning, song yeah. is actually about slavery. And yeah. I legitimately was like, fuck you. Like, no it's <laughs> not. Like that's a beautiful song. There's no way. And then I went back and I like listened to the song and I was like, "Oh, holy shit. It actually is about slavery." Yeah, the, yeah, cuz that's the thing that's so uh we only know Randy Newman from his like kind of friendlier 
like Pixar kind of songwriting. He was writing songs for like children's movies, basically. He was yeah. writing like "You Got a Friend in Me" still fucking slaps. Uh, the score for Monsters Inc. is one of the best I think standalone Pixar scores. Incredible. Um, but what you don't realize until you get into sort of his like earlier career is that he's like uh, like a satirist kind of. Without a doubt, uh, like a musical satirist, and it's just it really uh, just a funny guy. Um, and I think that that's my kind of impression. What I liked, so I was similar to you. Yep. And I think Sail Away, it was either Short People or Sail Away was my first non-Disney uh, Randy Newman song. Sure. Um, and like you, Sail Away was a song that was like just like kind of overwhelmed with how beautiful it was before I like listened to the lyrics. Sure, before actually, you really heard what it was. Exactly, exactly about, yeah. And then Short People was also, uh, Short People's just a really fun, peppy song. It is. Um, like kind of a, like his kind of little play on racism, which is something he likes to do. Which we'll, I'm sure, talk, sure about, talk about here. here. So, let's talk about the actual album itself, Good Old Boys. Um, so, well, can I ask Dustin what his yeah, intro Dustin, to Randy was? Yeah. Like, where, where, what, where, where were you at with Randy, and how did Good Old Boys kind of fit into your knowledge of Randy Newman? Well, I'm glad that you uh, asked me to listen to this, because it definitely would be an album that I had never even heard anyone talk about. Um, obviously, I knew about him as a composer, and right. I knew that he did have a pop career before that. Uh, but I wasn't aware of uh, the depth in his lyricism and, and how he was able to uh, use the satirical mindset of talking about subjects that... I mean, he was raised in Louisiana. Right. But and, Yeah, and that's so apparent in his music. Yeah. <laughs> Especially this album. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of crazy. This actually. album's all about the South. We'll get into it. We'll get into yeah. it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, more people know him to be an L.A. guy. And so I right. think right. there are some people who, when they first listened to this, probably weren't too comfortable with how deep he goes in using his language that he uses and talking about these themes that some people might feel protective about sure. if they are yeah. born and raised Southern true. And it is interesting that you use that word go into because I think it, I don't think it's a stretch to say this guy goes motherfucking hard in the paint yeah. in this album. Right from the first that right from the first track, it's kind of not kind of, it's shocking. Uh he, I love that Rednecks is the is the first, the first track. The first track. I think it's the only way you can go into an album like this. Agreed. You can't really bring it up any other three way. quarters of the way through. No, no, you have to throw everything right on the table. So that I this song really like uh, I didn't know what to expect with it. It it's uh, and I honestly didn't really know what to expect from this album going into it. Did you have any prior knowledge of the album? I think I had heard Mr. President Have Pity on the Working Man uh-huh. in, like, a compilation. Okay. Um, maybe Louisiana 1927, but all of these songs were relatively new to me. Okay. Or I had nothing really kind of with them going into it, and it was exciting to kind of form... I listened to this album once in the uh, first thing in the morning yesterday, mm-hmm. and then I went out for a walk and I listened to it again. Uh, I really... Yeah, this is this is like feels very like kind of autobiographical in a way that I don't normally associate with his music or with his his sort of songwriting voice. Yeah, um, maybe not. Maybe, and I would say maybe not autobiographical of who he is as a person, right? But autobiographical of where he came from. Exactly. Like it's more of an album about the specific specific place of Louisiana or the South writ large because there's a song about Birmingham, Alabama. How it's the greatest uh, land in Alabama. Or the greatest town in Alabama. Yeah, Birmingham, yeah. Birmingham, greatest town in Alabama. Uh, 
uh, there's a song called Giddy, which or guilty, Giddy, but guilty without the L, which yep. is like kind of seems like a play on like a kind of regional dialect. Um, and Kingfish, I mean, Kingfish is yeah, Kingfish yeah. is like kind of just all history. Yeah. Um, and that uh, I don't know, I really like this album. This yeah. Is just there's not a single song on it that I disliked. Okay. There were, and I really liked how uh, I really liked how lush it was. Sure. The production, the songwriting. And, uh, it's just kind of like, I, I, I do want to talk about, like, you pitched this to me like you think it's a, a very relevant record still. I do. I think that that's absolutely true. I think that this is, um, you should be, you should talk, I'm still kind of forming my opinion <laughs> sure. about this album, you know, like well, as we're talking about well, it. Well, I think you could argue that it's one of those things, one of those pieces of art doesn't necessarily have to be limited to a movie or a music, but something that was made quite a while ago that is for a specific time right yeah. but that is disturbingly relevant today but you wouldn't hear something like this not no you absolutely no one not. is no. doing something like this yeah like in, in, in this Rednex, he, in rednecks he refer- references the, the then governor of i think louisiana it was lester maddox lester maddox yeah so like he was on like some tv because uh, that's like kind of what i that's a kind of drive that kicks the album off is this like you get the sense that he has this lyric in it that he's like, he went to a part of a couple pieces of paper and wrote this song down, which is he wrote down Rednecks, um, which is like his response uh, to like this New York comedian saying, or like these, this sort of this, uh, uh, this drive into discourse at the time, but still relevant where it's like, oh, you know, the people in the South are just like these backwater hicks that don't know anything. And what's great about this song is that he kind of accepts that and is like, yes, that's true. But then he goes, but you have no right to say that when it's like, he has a great, like, the great, like, uh, like it's free for a cell in, in Chicago and free for a cell and all these other northern Yeah. Towns. Just, like, really being like, damn, like, Randy's not holding back. No, <laughs> the history behind that is Lester Maddox went on the Dick Cavett show uh, okay. back in the 70s. And Dick Cavett was known for kind of doing what Letterman did in a little bit more of, I would say, a cerebral way. Right. Where he kind of attacked the guest if he felt that the guest had something to be attacked over. Exactly. Very straight-faced. Very straight-faced. You know, it wasn't really, you know, it wasn't silly. He really wanted to kind of look at Lester Maddox and be like, you're a racist. Because Lester Maddox was a segregationist. Yeah. And he still was in 1970-whatever, when the early 70s, mid-70s, when this came out. And this track is from the perspective of a Southern man Mm -hmm. watching this show... Who, by the way, Dick Cavett was not Jewish. Right. But he's watching it and he's thinking, oh, well, that guy's got a big fucking nose and he's from New York. He, he must, must be, be a Jew. Jew. Oh, I see. I and see. So he's really using the perspective of this narrator to drive home the fact that he gets away with saying the N word is a white guy. Yeah. In the song, which, if you haven't heard the song, there's a lot of N bombs in it. <laughs> he drops the N bomb at least five times. And right. I gotta be honest with you. I didn't know that was gonna happen when I listened to the. I album. didn't either, man. I was just like sitting, chilling out, listening to the song. I'm like, oh, I'm kind of, I'm getting with this. Like this, and like this is a funny song, blah blah blah. blah. And then the N word just comes. I'm like, hey, hey, and it's now I'm sitting up and listening to this fucking thing. No kidding. How can you not? Because yeah. he's taught. Not only is Randy Newman white, but he's singing from the perspective of a white southerner yeah. who is clearly racist. Yeah, and it's just such an interesting choice. You're starting out the album that way. Yeah. And then kind of from there, I think you and I, Dustin, kind of talked about it in the car. Those first three tracks are kind of all, in a way, introducing you to this place, which is the South, 
Louisiana, yeah. the bayou, in a way that says, this is a great place. By the way, we're racist. Yeah. By the way, <laughs> yeah, yeah. we're still good people. Yeah, but it's really well so structured in the sense that you were getting this perspective of a character who does have a name. It's Johnny Cutler. Yeah. That was the original uh, genesis of the album, was to do a concept album from the perspective of this character throughout the whole thing. Mm-hmm. He didn't end up doing that, but the way the first three songs happen, and my favorite song on the album is definitely Marie, and I think... Yeah, Marie's up there for me, too. I think Beautiful the reason track. is because it gets into this emotional complexity of this guy who we just spent two songs looking at how deplorable he can be and how all, the, all these other people around him can be, but then there's this very tender moment where it's a it's late-night argument, and he's drunk, but he's still professing his absolute love for this woman and this beautiful, lush string arrangements. It all just comes together so perfectly. And I think that's something that I often identify with is even when we're looking at characters who don't have too many redeeming features, as long as we can get one moment where it's just simple and quiet and beautiful like mm-hmm. that, that works really well for me. But then the next song is the Richard Nixon song. Yeah, Mr. Mr. President, Head Fitting yeah. the Working Man, yeah. And then the middle of the album is kind of more of a historical look because we get into three songs all about Huey Long, yep. who was yeah. the governor of Louisiana in the late 20s. And so I think that's Which has amounted a very, a, a almost successful populist campaign for president before he was shot. Yes. And I, what, isn't uh, All the King's Men All the King's Men is him? loosely based on him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The only song that Randy Newman didn't write himself. Yeah. Uh, Every Man a King. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he kind of, um, my, one of my favorite is, uh, in the back half of the album, you have Wedding in Car- uh, Naked Man, Wedding in Cherokee County, Back on My Feet Again, and Rolling, which are just like kind of four really good just just songs in a row, like just kind of poppy songs in a row. Uh, Rolling uh, is kind of a, a, a transposition, uh, or I forget the exact musical term, but it's he's using the theme for um, kind of leaning on the everlasting arms. Oh, sure. A little bit. It's like you can kind of see that he's playing in that kind of space just to, to, to kind of close out the album and get us get us home um but i like really like back on my feet again that was just kind of a really it's just kind of a fun song it is a fun song yeah and it, it he kind of gets like that's kind of like now that we have the heaviness out of the way like let's just naked man's about like a little lady who like comes across like a naked burglar or something yeah. like, just a really funny story there's some great characters in wedding in cherokee county that i that i liked a lot that song genuinely feels like a raymond carver short story yeah that's yeah. that song feels like a like long dark night of the soul of like like this is about to happen and I love this woman this is a crazy relationship yeah and we're about to do it and that, that to me was like that was like because I actually was introduced to this album oh you know what I you know how I was actually introduced to this album Ooh, tell us I was introduced to this album on the Tim Heidecker podcast ah, because okay. he's a huge fan of Randy Newman yeah have you listened to any of his music a lot of it oh yeah, yeah and you can definitely tell that and the Beach Boys which is kind of weird to think that Tim Heidecker loves the Beach Boys, which kind of feels like the antithesis of everything that he's about, but he still loves yeah. them. I mean, I I bet he loves, like, yes, that is the antithesis, and, but, like, the Beach Boys are also a fucking weird band. They <laughs> are, and, you know, Brian Wilson's, you know, wild. Yeah, Brian Wilson, uh, uh, Sorry, uh, Brian. <laughs> yes, Brian. I just got a very exciting text, you got a text from a friend of mine from Brian Wilson. Uh, I did get Brian Wilson. Wilson. Uh, yeah, but you know, I think Randy Newman is definitely a aside from just the Pixar stuff and just kind of how omnipresent his music was in our childhood. I think that there is like there is a little bit of a singer songwriter revival coming back. Okay. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with 
the with Alex Cameron. He's a Australian singer. Oh, no, he's he writes very. His album Force Witness is very Newman similar. Okay. Um, he writes a lot from the perspectives of just kind of like broken and uh, broken and pathetic men. <laughs> okay. Uh, he has this song called Marlon Brando, which uses the f bomb about as li- not as liberally as Randy Newman uses the n word in okay. Birmingham, but it is from this perspective of this guy who. Uh, he sees a pretty woman, sees a guy that he thinks, like, you get this image of this, like, beefed-up guy, this, like, hyper-masculine guy who has his, like, uh, Alex Cameron is great. Maybe we'll talk about him in a later episode. Okay, sure. But he, they, like, but there's not, in his music, there's not, like, the kind of political uh, urgency uh, as there is, like, in Good Old Boys. Um, you kind of get the sense that Randy Newman, like you were saying, is like the only guy that could make an album this indebted to the culture of the South. Like, in a way where, like, yeah, your family drives you crazy, but they're your family, so you have to love them. Yeah. Like, he's writing, uh, especially in the first cu- three songs, and probably the entire thing, he's, he's just writing, he's frustrated with his the perception of this place that he's from, but he's not, like... He's saying, like, I understand, you know? And I think that that's a harder... uh, You don't see that kind of relationship to home, I think, in a lot of music nowadays, which is why this album, I think, is so relevant and still sticks around. Um, It's because it is just so personal. It is. And I think that uh, one of the reasons why it continues to be uh, relevant is because of kind of something I said earlier, which is, you know... The South is a great place, yeah. according to these people. yeah. We as outsiders listening to this, knowing their ideologies, go, maybe the South isn't such a great place. And it's an album, especially in that beginning tracks, that is able to hold both ideas right. in continuum with each other. Yeah. Like, they are simultaneously affecting each other at the same time. You know, it's, I think there's like some F. Scott Fitzgerald quote that's like, the mark of genius is be able is being able to hold two contradictory opinions at the same time and right. both be true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or whatever it is. And I think that that album does that. I think it does, absolutely. Dustin, do you have any Well, thoughts? also think about the other bands that are releasing music from the South at this time. Bands like Leonard Skinner. CCR. Oh, CCR. Marshall Tucker Band. You yeah. even have like uh, Neil Young writing Southern Man. Southern Man. Which, which is, is a yeah. great song. Which yeah. is a great song, but it is like you under like that's a great song. Let's just we'll just talk about it. <laughs> we'll couch Neil Young Corner for some other time. Um, but that's a very yeah. very different perspective and different kind of music. Absolutely, that's yeah, very yeah, yeah. proud. I'm proud where I'm from. Yeah. I'm gonna fly the Confederate flag and fuck anyone who doesn't agree. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is, well, don't fuck everyone who agrees. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah, yeah. there's some validity to that. Yeah. But at the same time, there you can tell that there is an affection for these people. Absolutely. Even if it does, even if he is able to, like, much like Dick Cavett does to Lester Maddox in real life, be like, you got some problems. Yeah, like this, yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you guys recommend this album? I would absolutely recommend this album. This Definitely. is a real treat. This is a, this is a fun one to get into, and just, and I, I think I'm going to come back to this well a lot. Okay, cool. Uh, Perhaps next year when an election. Yeah, yeah. potentially in, I don't Pops know, 2020. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, Dustin, do you recommend this? I do recommend this. Awesome. awesome. Well, thanks for listening to the album. <laughs> thanks for listening to the album if you listen along with us. We are now transitioning into uh, the film discussion portion of the episode. Uh, this, uh, today's, episode, this, today's topic was suggested by our guest. So, Dustin, why don't you uh, intro our selection for this week? So, uh, 
this week I was very honored to be invited to come here, and I decided to choose After Hours as the film that we're going to talk and about. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, when Noah pitched the idea to me, this is mainly uh, the conversation about underrated and misrepresented uh, works of art. Uh, as far as films go, After Hours shoots right up there to the top for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a big Martin Scorsese fan, um, and I think that he's an absolute chameleon of a director. And for me, this is the first uh, film that really hammered home that idea to me. Uh, when I watched it, the first 20 minutes, I didn't know what I was watching. I mean, sure. I was lucky enough to take a class at film school uh, taught by his agent, his first agent, Harry oh, Eflund, wow. the late, great Harry Eflund. Um, and the whole class was a semester about Scorsese's film. So each week we would watch a movie from him and we would talk about it and essentially get to hear inside stories from Harry about Marty's whole career. And I learned a lot about him as a filmmaker and him as a person. Um, but this was a highlight for me in that class, seeing After Hours for the first time because I had never heard of it before. And everyone knows Scorsese for his gangster films, for Raging Bull, Raging Bull. Yeah. The Aviator, even the, the Departed, you know these uh, movies that people like to latch on to. They're kind of epic. Yeah, they are very epic, and that's what is actually kind of really interesting about After Hours is that it came right after uh, he was trying to make The Last Temptation of Christ and it got canceled. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because the theaters basically said, you know what, we're not playing this. It's way too controversial. Yeah, we're not gonna allow. I'm glad you brought this. that up because that's actually. More so than, I, I'll just say, it, I like After Hours. Uh-huh. I don't think I love After Hours, but I like it. I think it's really interesting. One of the, That was one of the things I really was looking forward to talking to was, how does this movie fit into his entire filmography? It's still, I mean, I'm looking at his IMDb right now. It is one, of, like, in that kind of, like, let's just say this, his, it's from, like, Mean Streets on. Uh, he directed a lot before he directed Mean Streets, but Mean Streets was definitely him planning his, planning his, flag. his flag saying, this is me, this is my, like, I'm a, fi- I'm a filmmaker. Um, it's still kind of an outlier. There is a little bit of Bible stuff in this. Like, it is very, this is a very Job kind of thing. Like, just a really sure. beset man. But it's not, like, on the forefront with a lot, like, with a lot of his other stuff. So how would you categorize this movie? Because that's one of the things I love about it is it's kind of, it's, it's Dustin, why don't you get into it, actually? Well, I mean, I think it's a dark comedy. It's definitely right. got enough of it. Uh, enough weirdness and darkness and that's like I said before the first 20 minutes I was just completely shocked um, with what the characters were talking about and Mm -hmm. how weird and moody everything was Uh, I just didn't feel like anything else we had seen up until that point from him Um, but at the end of the day there's a lot of funny moments here if you wanted to give it a genre it'd be a dark comedy a dramedy whatever Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, it definitely also has that theme of a, a character, the main character, feeling guilt over nothing, um, which I think Scorsese latches onto a lot. Yeah. Uh, but New York as a setting is is really well portrayed here, just in the wildness of one night, you know, what else can go wrong? Yeah. yeah. And how all these different people on these only, like, a few select city blocks, it all seems like a very tight-knit downtown neighborhood. Yeah, I think that this is also his, a movie of his that has, like, the least has like the narrowest scope like it all takes place roughly over two like eight or nine hours something like that and like you like noah said you think of scorsese you think he's this epic filmmaker who's you know his best known works are like you know goodfellas the aviator uh movies that like go transcend like kind of decades 
uh, or like the the the, uh, the Last Temptation of Christ, which is like this huge his biblical huge, film, but b- a Bible movie, uh, or even like the movie that came out right before this, that he made right before this, is the King of Comedy, which is uh, much. It's like a character piece, but it's also like that has, like, a length of time that it takes place over. And you're just kind of, wet, you're along for the ride with the character. The characters think it's an epic. The characters think it's an epic, exactly. They think that this is a... Uh, uh, this is Ben-Hur. This is Ben-Hur. This is their, uh, they are, like, on the precipice of, of like, greatness. Um, but After Hours is just, like, a guy having a bad night. Like, just having the worst night. <laughs> like, it's so fitting that, like, you know, he keeps saying, I just want to go home, I want to go home, I want to go home. And then he, like, what I think is interesting is that it, this is, so I've seen this movie only once before, I think probably earlier in this year, and this time when I was rewatching it, like, the line that really stuck out to me was when he was in the Ber- Club Berlin dancing with the woman to, is that all, the Peggy Lee song, is that all there is, and he just says, I just want to live. And that's sure. kind of like, uh, I think that maybe that's what he's going for in this, um, if I can kind of assign a theme to this, is he, he, you're just watching this guy who's, uh, like, in a dead-end job, just kind of, like, and all he wants to do is live. Uh, and at the end of the movie, he's just kind of back to the status quo. Yeah. And I think it's, I think this is, one of, I think one of my main revelations after watching this was kind of what Dustin alluded to earlier about the fact that he basically, I think, and again, there's no way to know this for sure, but this is just based on what was happening in and around that time. He ba- I'm sure he thought, I will never get to release The tempta- Last Temptation of Christ. Yeah. And he, you know, what he does right before this is The King of Comedy, which I don't think was very well-received at the time, but later garnered a yeah. good status. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he's trying to get The Last Temptation of Christ made and out there, and like you said, everyone's like, nope, not gonna do it, sorry. And so then he comes across this script by Joseph Minion, After Hours, and not only can you just tell that him and his crew and in their cast were just having fun this is while a they were fun fucking movie. movie super fun in a way i'm sure he looked at the griffin dune character and went that is me no 100% that's me trying to get the last temptation of christ made 100% i'm trying to explain to everyone how to do this and i just want to go home and home being i just want to get this film out there yeah. and everything is standing in his way from and a I, behind the scenes perspective it really is on purpose the way this was made because he realized that the movies he had been known for and the way that Last Temptation of Christ got cancelled first before he ended up making it later um, he realized that he was the guy that made 100 day features You know, it took a long time, spent a lot of money and then they didn't really make a lot of that back mm-hmm. so he realized that if he was trying to continue as a director and continue with his career, he's going to have to maybe change a little bit uh, to adapt. And so that's what he did with this, because this is, you know, a 40-day feature with a crew of 25, 30 people. Right. And they made it quick, they made it cheap, and even, like, I was able to watch the 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 behind-the-scenes commentary, um, and him and Michael Bauhaus, which this is his first collaboration with, uh, DP Michael Bauhaus. Is it really? Yeah. Wow. Oh, well, because he, he were, Michael Chapman was who he was working with a lot before, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they all talked about how quick they were moving. You know, Scorsese was in his trailer the first day waiting, and then someone came to get him and said, okay, we're ready. And they're like, already? Yeah. And then at that point, from that point on, he just didn't go back to his trailer. They were sure. always moving. Mm-hmm. And Griffin Dunn also commented on that. It was just always, always on, always moving, and not a lot of breaks in between, which... I think works for a movie with this kind of frenetic pace. Without a doubt. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk about Griffin Dunn's performance a little bit because it's just uh, 
criminally underrated. Criminally underrated. I think that he's doing so much with just like his eyes are just so intense in this, and he like as the movie goes on, he just starts to wear like the kind of the the uh, his tiredness and just how much he's been being broken down. He just starts to like stoop over a little bit, um, and it's a very uh, how would you guys describe his performance? Like, what else do you what else stands out to you guys? Well, I mean. A fun little tidbit is that he was also a producer on this. Yeah, right. yeah, that's not true. So he kind of had to turn that part off during the making of because he was the main character. But beforehand, in pre-production and afterwards, he was also a producer, which is, I think, kind of a strange it's challenge kind of, to bring upon yourself. It yeah. is, and it's also kind of before the trend of big actors producing movies they want to be in. Right. You know, like Reese Witherspoon produced Gone Girl. I don't know how many people know that. And yeah, she was originally yeah. supposed to be in it. And then David Fincher somehow Jedi mind tricked her into not yeah. being uh, <laughs> Amy, Amy. Is it done? Is it done? Is that, is that yeah, the last Amy name? Dunn, yeah. yeah, done of all people, of all yeah. things. He tricked mind, Jedi mind tricked her into not being Amy Dunn and they cast Rosamund Pike instead. Yeah. And same thing, you know, Brad Pitt's got a production company. You know, Charlize Theron as a production company. Well, United it's... Artists started as, uh, uh, it was Pickford, Chaplin, and I forget who else. D.W. Like, Griffith. D.W. Griffith, that's right. They were like, we want to make our own movies and we want to produce our own stuff. Um, but I think that, I don't know how many of those, like, they were stars of. And I also think that, like... Very few, I think. Yeah. I, I don't have a ton of other context with Griffin Dunn. Like, I just know him from this movie, yeah, basically. Yeah, it's kind of... The only thing I think I'm was he I'm gonna look I think there's a chance that he may have done TV I think at some point I'm I know that he check. was um, the author John Gregory Dunn's nephew I think and it, I think Joan Didion's Joan Didion's nephew right they were married nephew. yeah mm, interesting. Um, yeah uh, no, but the, you don't really know a lot about him and I think that really plays to his advantage in this yeah because you just don't have anything to go off of him with so it's like oh well he must really be this guy right yeah i think that comes through a lot and also probably aids to the fact that he's in movie 43 he's in movie 43 he was the director he was a director of movie 43 oh he's also in an american werewolf in london and that's probably what people really knew him from at the time Mm -hmm. because that came out what four years before yeah it's like oh he's also in johnny dangerously and i guess that's like something of a classic i understand as i understand the michael keaton movie i know nothing about that it's a amy heckerling like okay uh like kind of a parody of like 30s gangster movies okay um with like michael keaton and joe piscopo just like the most 1984 comedy cast you could find sure (laughs) who who's not doing anything right now throw them in this movie yeah exactly um also, I think, I also, uh, so he meets, like, three women kind of anchor each, like, actor bit of this movie. The first is Rosanna Arquette as, um... Marcy. As Marcy, yeah. Also, just, this movie has a great fucking cast. Rosanna, you got Rosanna Arquette, you got Tommy, Ch- you got Cheech and Chong, you got Terry Gar. John Hurd. John Hurd, oh. John Hurd is the Catherine bartender. O'Hara. It's crazy. Catherine O'Hara. Home John Alone H- parents before yeah. Home Alone. Oh, my God. John Hurd beating up the, uh, the, the cash register is one of my favorite... Like comedy bits in the movie, just it's just, just crazy. so he just hates that thing so fucking much. He's just so uh, absurdly annoyed at it. Um, yeah, I mean, I just love this movie. Like, it's I think it is. I don't I don't have I don't have the mind to like kind of rank my Scorsese's right now, just because his you know he's such a big filmmaker and it's all over the place. But I love that this movie exists in his filmography. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, like it's this would kind of, it's. Almost more interesting that it is a Scorsese movie than it's not like just this kind of fun uh, like script that got made by you know somebody else and it still would have been as valid. It's probably would have been a good movie, but 
But there's this like the Scorsese like the Scorseseiness that he brings to it. Like there's so many great like just details, and he captures the details like because he knows New York so well. He knows New York so well, and he knows like um, just how to communicate. Uh, just this guy's interior, just like like his his vision and his way that he is like just perceiving this world and these events that are happening to him. Like I love the the way that we get into his head, and like the first scene is he's teaching Bronson Pinchot how like this temp. Sure. How to like work this computer, and then the temp starts going off about like his aspirations for like a like a, a, a magazine or something. He's just like looking around. Doesn't give a shit. Doesn't give a shit, and he leaves like just looks. He's the last person out the door. Is like the I love that um, the gates close on him and then open him up. Almost like it felt like kind of cathe- like a cathedral in a way, oh, interesting. or like heaven or something, um, or hell, yeah. or hell, <laughs> or hell. Exactly. It well, it is almost like uh, so. I don't know if you guys know this, but there is, like, a bit of kind of... The, the very, very ending of this movie is, like, subject to a lot of discussion. In talking about like, like, the last shot. Because it's that one-er, like, as as Paul gets back, you know, he gets dropped off by Cheech and Chong. Oh, yeah. <laughs> also, I love... This is one of those movies that, like, gives, like, gives you a bunch of seemingly random information and then just one by one starts, like, after it's done, like, winding it up for the first 20 minutes and you're done, it's just, like, kind of tying a bunch of loose ends together. Yeah. There's, like, kind of nothing unresolved at the end. And But then Paul gets back to the office. He, like, kind of sits down, puts his head back. There's that one or around as the credits are going, the first part of the credits, and then it's coming back through... I don't know if you caught this. Uh, Dustin, how many times have you seen this movie? Am I... Do you, like, do you know what I'm talking Three about? Three times, yeah. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? We're, like, there's this one or that comes, and then there's this, like abrupt cut and you just see a guy in a black jacket walking out of a cubicle and then okay. it's cut to black okay and people there's a little bit of speculation over what exactly that last that last second is and why scorsese kept it in yeah there's that brief interruption of i don't even know like pace or tone or whatever or just the film right before it's done officially sure um which I don't think another director would have done. Like, that's sure. a very Scorsese thing for me. What do you guys think that is, if anything? So I've, I've, I've watched a couple videos about this, actually. Uh-oh. So Uh-oh. I don't want to get... I don't want... I, unless you guys have your own thoughts about it, I don't want to... The thing is, I don't, to be honest with you. Right. Like, I don't really have too much about it. I think that's kind of his way of being like, but maybe something else. Yeah, like, exactly. You know, right, like, right, leaving right. the door open, as, yeah. so to speak. Because it's like, like you said... He kind of does wrap everything up. Like, there's not really a lot left to the imagination. So that's kind of the Marvel post-credit version of Scorsese's yeah. After Hours. <laughs> yeah. Where he's sitting there, it's like, fuck, I'm back at the office. Abrupt cut. Oh, maybe there's a little bit more going on here. Maybe the night's really not over. Right. And that's kind of all I really think about it. Gotcha. So I don't know if there's anything more, but in my mind, it's one of those movies where I don't know if there is anything more than just that. Right. It is perfect just by uh, just on itself. Dustin, do you have a do you have a perspective? Uh, well, yeah. I mean that that's just a very interesting way of, of ending it uh, from a camera moving perspective of having him come back and he sits down in his chair and then we're all of a sudden swirling around the entire office and seeing everyone come back in. Uh, but I I do know from a production standpoint that that uh, ending wasn't um, planned in from the beginning. They mm. worked on a couple of different endings and uh scorsese like was asking other people including steven spielberg apparently of how the right way to end this story was Mm -hmm. so it could be something that was thought of very last minute spur of the moment while they're shooting uh you never know really no you really don't i mean the, the the theory that i don't quite buy that 
it's one of those like very like kind of what culture we talk about what culture on yeah. the last episode that's very much like a hundred different like you know uh, one of those things. The, one of the theories is that Paul has spent so much of the movie trying to escape death that this last bit is death trying one more time oh. to get him. Okay. And you can see at some point, like, the camera moves around, you see his desk, and Paul's, like, somehow, like, Griffin Dunn's somehow gone off and maybe, like, locked off sure. stage or whatever. So, like, you know, death's still not gonna get him. That's the read on it. I just kind of think it's, like, he needed, like, maybe an extra beat because there's that Mozart. Um, oh, yes. Kind of the theme to the movie. Yes. There's another theory that it's just, like, simply he needed just another beat before the end, like, on the, uh, on the, on the track. cut. On the cut, yeah, basically. Okay. Um... I I kind of like that there's... Uh, I kind of like your read on it that it's just like the knight's still coming... Like, he thinks he's safe, but then the knight's still coming back. Sure, it's that never-ending you know? thing. Is that, yeah. And it's like, it's interesting, like, now having just graduated from college and, like, having to, like, I don't know, actually work. Yeah. You know, and yeah. living in L.A., it's like, you think, you know, you're, you know, gonna be fine, and then all of a sudden... You gotta do something else. You're, like, I working, the, Yeah, you know? I also love that this is kind of the story about, like, how... Like, Paul has, like, a nice apartment. Like, he seems miserable, but he has, like, kind of a nice... He's He doesn't seem like he wants for a lot. doesn't seem like he struggles. No, it's pretty bare It's there. pretty bare, yeah. That's the thing, is that he's looking for... You know, he goes into, the into like, Soho or whatever, this, like, kind of artier neighborhood. Um, and then he just finds, like, he's, like, kind of the entire environment, like, kind of wants to fight against him, almost like he's a virus. Yes, 100%. He's like, <laughs> you, know? you are... The tie that I'll never wear. Yeah, exactly. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. I think it's also interesting. Uh, Scorsese doesn't write a ton of the movies that he directs. No, right. Which is when you, uh, at least me, I when I think of, I guess, auteur filmmakers, I think of writers and writer-directors. No, exactly, yeah. And he did not write this script, nor does he write a lot of the scripts that he does. And a lot of the times if he is writing the script, he's writing it with someone else. And I think he does a really awesome job at making scripts that he did not write feel like his own exactly and i mean that might be like a no shit type of statement but that is just one of the reasons why this movie works at the level it does but also because it's not a typical scorsese film that might be the reason why it's so undervalued and so right, uh, under right. underseen and underrepresented in terms of like no this movie's just as good as some of the other stuff that he's done in a lot of ways it's kind of better than some of the other stuff that he's done but we don't really talk about it as much yeah i mean like I love the movie The Aviator, but that's also three hours long. And sure. I feel like this is a, like you're in and out in an hour and 40 minutes, basically. It's like a really lean movie. And sometimes you just like, sometimes I'm just in the mood to watch a Scorsese movie. Right. And this is like one that I can see myself coming back to a lot just because it's so damn fun. It is fun. <laughs> it's like really like, like playful. Yeah. But if you're looking at it from the perspective of his IMDb filmography, it's definitely not going to stand out with films that everyone has heard of. Right. Whether, whether or not you're into movies like Taxi Driver, like Goodfellas, and you see, if you know actors, you're going to like, oh, Robert De Niro's in these ones. I should probably watch those. Or, oh, Leo? He's worked with Leo? Yeah. You're not going to, who's Griffin Dunn? Right. Exactly. Yeah. You're going like, to look at the I poster, the, you're not going to know who that even is. Even us who like movies go, who's Griffin Dunn? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like, who the fuck is that guy? Um, and I think another, if I were to just add on two sure. more underrated Scorsese movies, sure. because I feel pretty passionately about them, it's bringing out the dead. Okay, that's another. Oh, I haven't seen that one in a, in almost a decade. I think that, that movie is fucking great. I watched that the new Bev and uh, and thirty five recently, uh, and it was outstanding. I just couldn't believe how balls to the wall that one was too. Also, New York, not really one crazy night, but a bunch of crazy nights. Sure. Yeah, because that's the one where he's following the EMT. Yeah. Like Nicholas Cage is an EMT. That's a great one. Uh, yeah. I I love. Uh, did you see Silence? 
Yes, I did. Oh, Silence is magnificent. Personally, I, I, I prefer that one over Last Temptation of Christ in terms of his overtly religious movies. Uh, but yeah, I, I saw Silence multiple times when it came out. Yeah, that was I. That movie kind of got buried, and it's a, it's a real goddamn shame because it is a and it also took masterpiece over thirty years to make. Yeah, I know, right? Oh my god. Uh, what was the other under? What well, the other underrated one? Uh, Alice doesn't live here anymore. Okay. Which is oh, I got one that one on DVD. Very early films. Uh, pre Taxi Driver. Yeah, yeah. pre Taxi Driver. It was like in bet- Was it like right before? Right after Mean Streets. It was yeah. like the sandwich between. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was the cheese. <laughs> yeah. It's really great, and Harvey Keitel is in that, and he plays his usual insane character that he find, he usually does in sure. Scorsese movies. Um, I forget the name of the lead actress. I'm, I'm Ellen Burstyn. Yes. yes, Ellen Burstyn. Yes. My favorite tweet of all time, or one of them, is uh, "Close to Burstyn." I'm close to Burstyn, and it's uh, Glenn Close relaying through Fiorocchi to Ellen Burstyn that she needs to pee or something like that. Like I'm busting up, I'm busting up the delivery, but it's like just this, this is absurd, absurd situation. <laughs> And Ellen Burstyn's like, come on, come on, guys. I Get love Ellen Burstyn. Knock it off. <laughs> she's, uh, she's the one in Requiem for a Dream, right? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. That, we don't need to talk about that. We <laughs> on the podcast. Enough, enough people have stand for Requiem for a Dream and for Darren Aronofsky that we no, can like, kind of fight that, our way in on that guy later. <laughs> that one's not on the list. Yeah, that, that one's not, not on the list. list. No, <laughs> hell yeah. Uh, well, I'll ask. Uh, Dustin, do you recommend this? I absolutely do. Uh, you gotta go see it. Uh, if you... No Scorsese and you don't know this one. You have to, even if you don't know that many yeah. Scorsese movies, it's it's a fun one. I, I would also recommend this one. This is also one that I hear a lot of people who don't like Scorsese say that it's their favorite Scorsese. Who's saying they don't like Scorsese? <laughs> I, it's, uh, it's just some folks. Just, just some folks. folks. <laughs> okay. He's too violent for me. Yeah, it's, it's, hey, people got their taste. I'm not going to so. begrudge them, but it's like... Uh, it's just not something you hear very often. It's, no, it it really truly not. is not. It's not a thing that... It's not like every... I'm running into three people a day saying that. It's just a thing that I hear sometimes, sure. but it's like... Uh, but yeah, I, I love this movie. It was a treat to rewatch it. And, uh, yeah, I think that it's just, you just kind of have, it's, it's just a good movie that you can just kind of sit down and just like let yourself have a good time watching something. Totally. Cause we didn't, we didn't really talk about the plot at all. I don't think that we spoiled too much. It's, it's not really a movie that you need to talk about the plot almost. Like it's very yeah. much like these are the things that happen, but it's kind of like, just kind of the effect it has on yeah, you. Yeah, it's more the energy and the vibe of the thing than yeah. it is, like, you know, uh, what happens in it. Um, I also just love it as it's kind of like, it's a, it's a time, kind of a timeless movie, but it is like a perfect, like, this capped in this, like, time capsule of, like, 1984 New York. Yeah, 100%. Uh, it's definitely a pla- You wouldn't see a ton of these places that exist anymore, I don't think. Like, no. Just these, like, very consciously grimy places. Um, yeah. Kind of don't exist. <laughs> not in not in Manhattan. Not in Manhattan, at least. Absolutely yeah. not. Well, I would also recommend this. Uh, I would love to see this movie at like a midnight screening. Oh, right. Like yeah. with like a just a crowd full of people, like a size similar to like what the new art is. I think that would be like the perfect. Yeah. It's not a. It's not. It's not a big movie, but you know, it's epic in sense of like where he goes and what he does but it's not a big movie so i think the new art would be like a perfect size theater maybe not in terms of who goes to the new art <laughs> but like you know in terms of like the size of the theater and the amount of people it can fit in the way that theater set up i would also recommend this one uh it is definitely an underrated scorsese i think it's right up there uh in terms of underratedness with like I don't know, but like King of Comedy, like yeah, I think King yeah, of Comedy yeah, yeah. is probably my favorite of the underrated Scorsese's. Uh, I think that movie is 
fucking phenomenal. I think that that one's like actually kind I of love, underrated. Yeah, I love eighty Scorsese because it seems like he has a much narr- like a much narrower focus. Yeah, like, um, and like you know, you King of Comedy, your favorite Last Temptation in there. Get color of money. You have like Ra- Raging Bull's kind of like the biggest one from that period. Sure, but it doesn't even feel like an eighties movie. It's yeah. like nineteen eighty in a lot of ways. It's interesting how even though numerically that's the start of the eighties, the start of the eighties to me doesn't feel like it happens until like eighty three or eighty four. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. When we're already in the decade. Yeah. Um. But then like the nineties, that's when he gets like back into like Epic Marty. That's like Casino. That's Goodfellas. Uh, Age of Innocence. Uh, Gangs in New York at the tail end, basically. Yeah. Um. Yeah, great. Three recommends all around. Uh, doesn't get much better than that. Truly doesn't get much better than Randy Newman and Martin Scorsese, you know, if I have to be completely honest. <laughs> what a team. I what don't think th- we're ever going to see them collab. Probably <laughs> not. Probably but we can dream. Yeah. A boy can dream. Some boys can dream. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Dustin, are you on the internet anywhere? Where can folks find you if they want to uh, find you? I am on Instagram, just my first and last name, Dustin Tickham. Um if you need me to spell that out, that's... Yeah, can you spell that out <laughs> yeah. for us? D-U-S-T-I-N-T-I-T-C-O-M-B. Wow. Nice. Welcome. Okay. I might have to get Instagram just to follow Yeah, Noah you. doesn't have Instagram, and I, I keep telling him that... Noah's on Twitter, but not Instagram, and probably because he's a, he's a glug for punishment. <laughs> for punishment, you can follow me at Moa Narger, M-O-A-H-N-A-R-G-E-R. Please do not follow me, <laughs> but I'll say it every time. Uh, where can they find you? Uh, I'm on Instagram at hotdogdebicki. I am also on Letterboxd at Mason McGuire. Uh, and that's about it. Oh, I also have another podcast, The Barn, a podcast about The Shield, where all I do is talk about, go through episode by episode with a friend of mine and talk about the show, The Shield. Uh, you can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, but that's it, guys. Thanks for listening. And uh, we'll see you at the next episode, whatever that's going to be. Yeah, we'll see you on the next one. Thank you for listening. Dustin, thank you so much for being Dustin, here. Dustin, thanks for coming to the trap. You were a great, you were a great guest. Uh, thank you for bringing After Hours to the, to the table. Anytime. And, uh, thank anytime. you. We'll see you on the next one. See you on the next one.